So you guys will notice that I handed out to you not a worksheet, but I handed out notes to you. Uh, and there's a reason I did that, because tonight I want to do something just a little bit different um, than what we normally do. And I could explain it this way. So I'm sorry to traumatize you, but let me remind you of your homework textbooks. You know that giant, big book that you pretend you've read, uh, but you haven't read because it's too big? Um, as far as I know, textbooks haven't changed a lot in how they're designed um, since I was also in junior high and high school. Um, and one thing I remember about how textbooks are designed is this. Most of the textbook is basically just page and page and page after text. But sometimes when the author wants to tell you something either really exciting or really important, what they'll do is they'll have this sidebar. So what they'll do is they'll take text that is kind of but not exactly related to the topic they're talking about, and they'll put it in a box on the side or on the bottom of a page, and it'll be in a different color to show you the separate topic. So for example, if you have a biology textbook and you're reading it and it's explaining to you about cells and it's explaining how cells work and what they do in your body and the mitochondria is the powerhouse of the cell, that's something someone told me this week. Um, but then on the side, there's a yellow bar with text and there's a picture of a guy and the sidebar is explaining to you the guy who invented the microscope and how important of a discovery that was so that you uh, know what a cell is because we could finally look at it. So raise your hand if this is tracking with you. You understand what I'm talking about with sidebar. Okay, what I wanna do tonight with you is take a little sidebar. And the reason we're doing that is because we have been talking about Christ and his gospel in the book of Philippians. And we just covered a really, really important part of Philippians, which is Philippians chapter two. Paul was talking about unity and he was talking about humility. And he was talking about how you need to be a humble person if you are going to be united with other people in the church. And in order for you to truly understand what humility is and what it looks like, you have to look at Christ. And then we get this amazing uh, section, which we know is probably a Christian hymn that people in the ancient church sung, describing how good Jesus is. And even though Paul explains that really amazingly, I still think it's really important that just for one evening, instead of just immediately moving on to the next part of Philippians, we take a little sidebar. Because we didn't cover everything that I believe is really important for you to truly understand how impactful Christ is in the book of Philippians. There's things that we didn't talk about that the church in Philippi does know. And because they knew them, it would help them glorify in Christ when they saw this hymn. And what I want to explain is really this. Last time we met together, uh, when we were looking at the example of Christ's humility, we learned that Jesus became a man. Raise your hand if you're tracking with me. Remember, Jesus was in heaven and he put on humanity. Okay, so most people are tracking. Jesus was fully God and he came to man and he took a full humanity. But when we were understanding that and we're asking the question of why Jesus did that, we simply said it was necessary. That's all we really covered. And that's really the sidebar I want to take today because it will be essential not just for you to be a Christian and have the data to be a Christian, but so that you really love Jesus, that you really, really love Jesus. 
And that's why I give you full notes, because I want you to just be able to kind of sit back, relax, and follow with me through this topic, because it's important. This is the question we're answering. Why was it necessary for Jesus to be a man? Why was it necessary for Jesus Christ to become a man? There's actually a lot of ways you can answer that question. It involves a lot of things that Jesus did. But in order to simplify what's really the story of the whole Bible, I want to just try and briefly sum that up in one sentence that we'll cover as we go through today. Here's the sentence. It was necessary for Jesus Christ to become man to restore us to God's original intention. It was necessary for Jesus Christ to become man to restore us to God's original intention. Jesus became a man so that we could do everything God designed us to do. And if we're going to talk about design, and we're going to talk about original, which comes from the word origin, then we kind of need to start at the beginning. So if you have your Bible, go over to Genesis chapter 1. We're going to hop around a little bit today in our Bibles, but I want to do that not because we're going to read every verse that we get to here, but I just want you to physically know where these things are in your Bible. If you have a phone, this is absolutely useless, but if you have a physical Bible, uh, this will be helpful for you. Genesis 1, a verse you all know incredibly well, but we should still be in absolute awe in reading it. You are people who know how the whole universe was created. Genesis chapter 1, verse 1. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. The earth was without form and void, and darkness was over the face of the deep. And the Spirit of God was hovering over the face of the waters. I like the way someone summed up those verses. A God on his own. Jesus says it later. Before Abraham was, I am. And he could have just as easily said, before anything was, I am. This is a statement that says God owns the universe. This is a statement that says God is outside the universe. And therefore, he has absolute authority over the whole universe. He is meaning. And he knows more than anyone else, infinitely, how everything works which is why we're thankful for the Bible to actually tell us how the universe works. In the verses following that, God explains how he created the universe. In verses 3 to 10, God shapes the world. It's like there's nothingness and he creates somethingness and then he gives it its general dimensions. That's verses 3 to 10. We have light and darkness, morning and evening, heaven and earth, waters and dry land. The basic building blocks are put together in a form, which then in verses 11 to 25, God fills that earth. He fills it with stuff, vegetation, plants, fruits, sun, moon, stars, living creatures in the sea, in the sky, and in the dry land. And Moses, who wrote Genesis, is ordering this to highlight something really, really important, which comes in verses 26 to 29, which is this. God fills the earth with his masterpiece, his finishing touch, which is man. Genesis chapter 126, let us make man in our image after our likeness and let them have dominion. And if you go down to verse 28, 
It says, God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. And God blessed them. And God said to them, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it and have dominion over everything. Humans exist to glorify God. No, notice I didn't say Christians. I said humans. Humans, whether they actively reject God or they reject the existence of God, we were designed and created to glorify God, which means to find our joy and our purpose by fulfilling his intentions for us. And according to Genesis chapter one, we have at least two missions. And the first is simply to live with God. God is a God who built us for relationship and not just with each other, but with him. The words that he uses is evoking this image of being modeled after God. The word image means reflection, which means our purpose in some way is to point attention to God. And if you can even wrap your minds around it, the way you are designed is to be like God in some way. We're to be righteous like him. We're to be good like him. We're to love like him. And the reason we do these things isn't just to do things for him, but to live with him. The way you could say it is, we're not just built to exist. We're built to exist with God, to be in his presence. And that's why he uses the word blessed. From the moment we were created, we were blessed because we were with God in his presence, with him in relationship, being where he was. That's what true life is. That's our first mission, to live with God, to enjoy him. But the second is also very fascinating. We don't talk about it a lot, which is that mankind exists to rule for God. We were designed to be little kings and to rule under our big king, which is God himself. That's why he uses the language of dominion or subduing. God placed the control of the world ultimately under him, but subjectively to us, under us. We get to live in a world that God created for us to enjoy for his glory. That's how you are built. That's why we invent things. That's why we create things ourselves. In Adam, you actually see it in chapter 2, verse 20 of Genesis, where he starts naming things. That's one of the very first things God did. He created things and he named them. And then you see Adam doing the exact same thing after. So we're created to live with God and we're created to rule for God. And both of those mean one thing. We were created in perfect privilege. We had a privilege beyond anything we could possibly imagine to be in a universe built under God, to be built to live with God. This is what the psalmist in Psalm 8 talks about when he says this, what is man that you are mindful of him? and the son of man that you care for him, and yet you have made him a little lower than the heavenly beings, and you have crowned him with glory and honor. You have given him dominion over the works of your hands, and you have put all things under his feet. 
This is the privilege that we've been built with. And obviously, as you guys know, because I know you know your Bibles well, it doesn't take very long for this whole thing to get ruined, right? Genesis 1, God creates the world. Genesis 2, we have a little bit more about the privilege of man. Genesis 3, everything's ruined. Or you could phrase it this way, man's original intention was broken. In order for something to be restored, we have to know how it got broken. And Genesis 3 explains how the serpent, who we know is Satan, the devil himself, God's enemy, came to tempt the first woman and the first man out of that privilege. The devil told lies to Eve and consequently to Adam to do one thing, to convince her that God did not have good intentions for us. That's the ultimate lie in Genesis chapter three, that we would be better gods ourselves. If we didn't rule for God, but we ruled for ourselves. If we didn't live with God, but we live for ourselves. That's the lie. And you can see that even in the few sentences we have of what the devil said to Eve. For example, in chapter three, verse one, he says, did God actually say? The God of the universe who created everything by simply speaking it. The devil said, you can't trust his words. That was the lie. God who formed the world with his words, he didn't speak clearly enough when he gave you commands. That was the first lie. The second right after it, chapter three, verse four, the devil says, if you eat from the fruit that God said you'll die, you will surely not die. The idea there is that God is unworthy of his authority. He is lying to you. You should not follow him. And of course, Genesis 3, 5 If you eat from the tree, your eyes will be opened knowing good and evil, which is just another way of saying you'll have a better life if you disobey God than if you obey God. And all of those things led to the same inevitable conclusion. Regardless of how untrue they were, Adam and Eve believed the serpent, a creature instead of the creator, and everything changed for the worst disobedience to God breaks everything. Our bodies are cursed, chapter 3, verse 16. The ground is cursed, chapter 3, verse 17. And our lives are cursed because now we die, Genesis 3, 19. And most importantly to all of these things, mankind's relationship with God is broken. You know, there's a reason we don't see God right now. As Romans chapter 1, verse 20 says, all of God's invisible attributes are clearly perceived. And yet we still struggle with this thing called atheism. And the reason is not because God is unclear. It's because we can't live with God because of our sin. That's broken from Genesis chapter three. And we see it because at the end of Genesis chapter three, it says, the Lord God sent them out of the garden of Eden to work the ground from which he was taken. He drove out the man, and at the east of the Garden of Eden, he places the cherubim and a flaming sword that turned every way to guard the way to the tree of life. If creatures want to usurp the role of the creator, they can't live with the creator. That is infinite treason to the God of the universe. 
Psalm 14 verses 2 and 3 says, The Lord looks down from heaven on the children of man to see if there are any who understand or who seek after God. They've all turned aside. Together they become corrupt. And there's none who does good, not even one. Here's the reason that's so important if you want to know how humanity is going to be restored. And this is really essential. We can't fix ourselves. We can't fix ourselves. We can't initiate salvation. None of us can. So if you want to be incredibly technical, if somebody asks you, how can I be right with God? You can say you can't. That's obviously a not very helpful thing to say because yes, there are things you can do. But if you want to understand based on the spiritual fabric of reality, we are so blind in our sin that if we are ever going to be saved, God needs to do something amazing. And God actually begins that process. Because what you see for the rest of your Bible, especially this whole chunk, this whole chunk, this whole chunk, that's actually pretty accurate, this whole chunk, this is a story of God working through history to explain to you how God is going to initiate salvation, how God is going to initiate it. And in Genesis, it starts really amazingly, which is God starts covenanting with people, which means he makes agreements with people in which he is going to do all the work. God is going to initiate relationship with people. And then God is going to hold up his end of the bargain. And he's going to keep his end of the bargain no matter what the other person does. This is a pretty amazing start. And we see how faithful God is to multiple people who are really messed up for the rest of Genesis, Genesis 12 to Genesis 50. And then when you get to Exodus, it starts looking like God isn't going to keep his promise because the people of Israel are enslaved in Egypt. But again, there's a reason that happened, which is God was going to show he can redeem his people, which means to buy them back. There is no slavery that people can fall under that is too big or a price too big to pay for God to redeem them out of it. That's Exodus, really up until Exodus 18. And then, once he's bought them back, God does something really interesting. Something we actually think is really boring, but the Bible thinks is really important. Which is in this new society that we've been redeemed in, God creates a system. He creates a system in this society. And this system is going to explain to us what needs to be done to deal with sin. And at the center of that system, there's people. And those people were supposed to have a job of connecting God and man together. They were a representative. They were like the leaders. They were the people who were going to show people what it takes to have a relationship with God again. Because with our sin comes conditions. So the system, if you don't know, is the sacrificial system. It's the book of Leviticus, offering offerings and sacrifices to God. And the people, you may have guessed, the representatives are priests. So if we were walking down the street, or maybe let's just say all of us were up there and we saw a priest walking down the street, uh, we would think he looks pretty weird because they'd be dressed weird. Some of them have big hats. They have big colorful clothes that don't fit in. Um, and sometimes they're chanting awkward things, just oh, just weird stuff. I went to a Catholic university, and the first time I ever went to a mass there, 
I was very weirded out and taken out of the whole thing by just seeing these different things that looked like costumes. To us, in our modern day, priests look kind of weird. But in the Old Testament, they weren't weird. You didn't see a priest and you're like, that's interesting. That's not what you thought. And you really need to get into the mind of the Old Testament to understand how important a priest was. A priest was an expert at living with God. And they were an expert at living with God because God made it incredibly clear what their job was. So when you saw a priest, you immediately knew they were important and there are some things you thought of. Here's one, maybe the first really important thing you thought. When you saw a priest, you knew that God still wanted to have a relationship with mankind. Because when you saw a priest, you saw that God didn't need to fix the mess that we put ourselves in. He didn't need to. But God, in his grace, decided to stick with it. Psalm chapter 5, verses 4 and 5. The psalmist says, You are not a God who delights in wickedness. Evil may not dwell with you. The boastful shall not stand before your eyes. And you hate all evildoers. You hate them. Which means, that's amazing to know that. And then to know there's this whole system when God wants to still hang out with us. Because we are all wicked. We are all evil. We are boastful. We are evildoers. And yet you saw a priest and you're like, God actually has a plan for this. God isn't rejecting us. He's actually created us to give grace to us that we would give grace to other people. And every time you saw a priest, you thought that. You thought God could have destroyed us, but instead he's going to restore us. But there's another thing you would have thought too every time you saw a priest. Because when you saw a priest, they were probably doing stuff. And they were doing a lot of stuff. And so when you saw a priest, you also would have thought this. Wow. Relationship with God is hard. It's really hard. And it looks difficult. Because the priests every day, especially in Israel with a million people, were doing a lot of things, a lot of requirements they were following, a lot of rituals, a lot of tasks, a lot of things, which we find boring because that's why none of us have read the book of Leviticus, right? I'm being over dramatic, but I know some of you have probably read it, but I don't think any of you woke up this morning and you're like, so excited to start my devotions in Leviticus. I mean, if I just switch there, if his offering for a sacrifice of peace offering to the Lord is an animal from the flock, male or female, he shall offer it without blemish. If he offers a lamb for his offering, and five minutes ago you were like, blah, 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 blah. Almost none of us are excited to read Leviticus. But listen, just think for a second. Do we think the God of the universe gave us the book of Leviticus to bore us? Probably not. And it's good to know that, and to get your head around that so you know why Leviticus exists. Why are there so many things explaining so many requirements and things that other people had to do for God? Here's why. Because sin is a really big deal. Sin is a really big deal. If you are worshiping a holy God who wants a relationship with you, and you are an unholy person, if you're going to live with God, God's going to show you some necessary requirements to live with him. Because he's a big deal and your sin is a big deal. That's why the system existed. God was showing his people every single day with every sacrifice and every offering how bad sin was and how much work it's going to take to atone for it. 
which is a fancy word for dealing with it. And I explained to you the word atonement because there's one day in the year for Israel that actually showed how all the system worked and why it was important. And we actually know this day is really important because the first five books of the Bible, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy, the middle book is Leviticus and the middle chapter, Leviticus 16, is the center, which means the most important chapter in those first five books. And you know what Leviticus chapter 16 is about? It explains a day called the Day of Atonement. And it was the most important day of the year for an Israelite. What happened is everyone came together into the middle of the camp. In the middle of the camp, there was a tent called the Tent of Meeting. And that's where God was. And since it was in the center of the camp, all of Israel knew that God was with his people. He dwelt in the midst of them, in the middle of them. And what would happen is everyone would gather to the middle and they would see the high priest and probably a lot of other priests who were led by the high priest. And he'd be putting together a lot of stuff. And then once he had everything done, he would go into the tent of meeting. And we'd all be standing outside waiting for him to come out. But we wouldn't be like bored or trying to like waste time by talking to each other. We would probably just be sitting, staring there silently, waiting for that guy to come back out. And when he came out, uh, do you know what you'd see? You'd see the high priest with all his very fancy robes that were all part of God's requirements, and he'd be covered in blood, covered in blood. Head to toe, he probably would have had almost no parts of his skin showing, almost. All of it would be covered in blood. And the reason why is because he was sacrificing animals. He was taking live animals inside and butchering them, which was gross and violent. And there's a reason why he would do that. Because if God is not going to destroy us, he's going to show us that something else needs to be destroyed. And that's because God is just. God can't just ignore sin or he'd be a bad God. But God is a good God who judges sin. And he wanted to show the people that if there is ever going to be a sacrifice good enough to please his holy justice, but we as sinners wouldn't be the ones judged, then he needed to show us how violent and awful the process was going to be for someone else. Forgiveness is costly. And it does not come for free. Leviticus 16 verse 16 says that. When it says, when the priest makes atonement, which means when he does the right procedures and something dies in the holy place, it happens because of the uncleanness of the people and because of their transgressions and their sins. That's the cost of sin. So all of those things paint a little bit of a picture which is that if we were going to have a priest who's going to lead us in this system, they needed to have three things, three requirements to make a priest that God would be pleased with. Number one, they need to be appointed by God and they need to represent the people. God needs to pick someone and say, that person represents me well. They're reflecting my image in a way that pleases me. And they need to actually be from the people. So Israel couldn't pick someone from Moab and put them in and be like, he's our high priest. No, he's not from our tribe. He's not from our group. He can't represent us. It needed to be someone from a certain place, 
from a certain tribe. And that person would represent the people. That's the first requirement. The second was this. They needed to do everything required. They needed to know God's law and keep it personally. And then they also needed to know everything that needed to be done to honor God. So they needed to be the right person and then do everything God required. And then the final one was this. They needed to provide the right sacrifice. You know, sins and the offerings for them got worse depending on how bad the sin was. So maybe you trip and you headbutt someone. You know, you take three pieces of fruit and you put that on an altar and that's good. That's fine. But if you accidentally killed someone, that's a lot of cows that you're killing that day. Because the worse the sin, the bigger the offering and the more needs to be done. And when you did that day in and day out, this is one thing you would have thought. You would have thought, God wants to live with us. We have a priest. You would have also thought, sin is a really big deal because we have to keep doing this. We have to do a lot. And you also would have thought this. How are we ever going to get a human good enough to be a perfect priest? Because, you know, when you read the Old Testament, most of the priests were not good priests. They were really bad priests. Some of them God killed instantly. Some of them God allowed to exist for a while. And that was to prove something. But here's the other problem. Even if you had a really good priest. So for example, in 1 Samuel, you have Samuel, who's an awesome priest. And he represents God really well. But there's still a problem. He's going to die one day. And then what? You need to keep getting priests, you need to keep hoping that God shows them and that they're the right person because they can't represent you forever. Which means we are going to need a priest who has all the right requirements, who's exactly the person God calls for, and who's going to be able to represent the right sacrifice to die for the sins of us. You probably know where all this is going, right? That priest is Jesus. That's the point. The priest is Jesus. And if you want to understand why Jesus is a priest, turn to the book of Hebrews. Again, we won't look at all of the book of Hebrews because it's a long and somewhat complicated book. But to sum it up, the book of Hebrews is about how Jesus is a priest and why he's a priest. And this is where everything is going for us because this is ultimately one way that you can explain why Jesus needed to become a man is because Jesus needed to be a perfect priest. So remember the three requirements I gave you for being a priest. Let's walk through all three of them and see how Jesus fit those requirements. Number one, the priests need to be appointed by God and represent the people. Jesus was God, so he can represent God just fine. The second member of the Trinity And yet the father appointed the son to take on human flesh and come to earth. Why? Because a priest needs to represent the people. From everything I've heard from people I've talked to, I'm a pretty good representative of Canada. As far as I know, for lots of different reasons. But you know what? If someone came through that door covered in maple syrup and riding a polar bear, I'd be like, they're a better representative. That's the guy. That's our country. Not really, but kind of. I've met people who I think embody what it means to be Canadian better than me. But you know what they need to be? 
a Canadian citizen. Because if they're not a Canadian citizen, then they're not a very good representative of Canada, are they? So how is God going to save us without a representative who's perfect and a human? That's what Jesus did. He can represent God to us perfectly because he is God. John chapter 1 verse 18, Jesus makes God known. But he made God known by walking among us. Walking as a human. Hebrews chapter 4 verse 15 and 16 says, We do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses because we have one who in every respect has been tempted as we are and yet without sin. Hebrews chapter 2 verse 14 and 17 and 18 say this, Since therefore the children share in flesh and blood, Jesus himself likewise took part of the same things. Which means since we're human, if Jesus is going to be our priest, he needs to be human. He says he had to be made like his brothers in every respect so that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in the service of God. Jesus became man so he could represent us. And he could be the picture of restored humanity that we needed. And you know why he's such a good priest? Because if he is fully human, we will want to be represented by him because he is the most loving priest you could have possibly imagined. That's why Hebrews chapter four says, we have a high priest who can sympathize with our weaknesses. You know, when you go through a struggle or you're exhausted or you're just tired of living in this world, Jesus understands you. And it's not just because he created you. It's because he lived a perfect human life. He's been a human. In fact, he is a human right now in heaven. And he's going to be a human forever. Jesus will always understand you. Because he's experienced everything you're experiencing, except for one thing, which is sin. Hebrews chapter 5, verses 8 and 9 says, Although Jesus was a son, he learned obedience through what he suffered and being made perfect which means he lived a perfect human life. He became the source of eternal salvation to all who obey him, being designated by God a high priest. That's ultimately the second thing Jesus needed to do as our high priest. He needed to do everything required. He needed to live a perfect life. Joel Beakey says, salvation is only in Jesus Christ because there are two conditions that no matter how hard we try, we can never meet. Yet they must be done if we are to be saved. The first is to satisfy the justice of God through obedience to the law. And the second is to pay the price for our sins. So this is the first one of those things. Jesus lived a perfect life. From day one, Jesus never had the thought, things would go better if I did them my way. Every temptation, every struggle, every weakness, every situation he was in, he said, God's way is the best way. And as he did that, he actually showed what it should have looked like for every human. Jesus shows us humanity restored. This is how we should have lived. 
And since we can't live that life for God because of our sin, Jesus lived that life for us. And because he's our priest, because he's our representative, if you know Christ and you die and you stand before the Father, you've got no perfection to show the Father. And that's when the Father will point at Jesus sitting on a throne beside him and say, that's why I sent him. Because when I see him, I see the perfect life you should have lived. But Jesus lived that life for you. Romans chapter 5, verse 19. For by one man's disobedience, the many were made sinners, which is Adam. Adam is our representative. Until Christ, by the one man's obedience, the many will be made righteous. If you believe in Jesus Christ, you don't need to live a perfect life because Jesus, as your high priest, lived the perfect life for you. But there's still another one, which is you don't just need perfect obedience. You need to pay the penalty of your sin. You have, are doing, and will do a lot of things God hates. But Jesus did that too. Instead of offering eternal sacrifices pure enough to end all other sacrifices, Jesus offered one once for all perfect sacrifice to deal with your sin, my sin, and the sins of anyone else who puts their faith in Jesus, which is he offered himself. You can imagine the picture. Jesus putting together a massive offering, a massive altar, and then standing to the top of it and setting it on fire. That's what Jesus did. Hebrews chapter 10, verses 8 to 10. The author quotes Psalm 40 and says, God neither desired nor took pleasure in sacrifices and offerings and sin offerings. And you look at that and be like, what? That was like the whole Levitical system was offering sacrifices. What do you mean God wasn't pleased with them? What he's saying is none of those things could take away your sins. They were all pointing to a person who could take away your sins. And that's why he says, it's dealt by this, the servant who comes and says, behold, I have come to do your will. He does away with the first. It means the sacrificial system is no longer relevant for us because he's establishing a second. And by that will, we have been sanctified through the offerings of what? The body of Jesus Christ, once for all. Jesus died to take your sin. Jesus died so you wouldn't have to die. And he didn't just die. He took all of God's righteous anger and wrath against you for your sin. And he put all of that on Christ. For the first time in eternity, Jesus didn't feel the presence of the Father. You know what that is? That's hell. Being away from God for eternity. Jesus felt that on the cross. And he felt it so you wouldn't have to feel it. Hebrews chapter 9, verses 26 to 28. Jesus has appeared once for all at the end of the ages to put away sins by the sacrifice of himself. And just as it has been appointed for man to die once, and after that comes judgment, so Christ, having been offered once to bear the sins of many. So this is Jesus experiencing hell. He did that for this reason 
so that he will appear one day a second time, not to deal with sin, but to save those who are eagerly waiting for him. None of us can offer a pure enough sacrifice to pay for all the sin we've committed. So Jesus allowed himself to die to pay for it for you. And ultimately, because Jesus did that to represent us as a high priest, which is why he needed to become a human, to do everything you as a human needed to do, man's original intentions were restored. Through everything Christ did, you can live with God again. That's what we were created for. Placing your faith in Jesus Christ as your representative means that his perfect life is yours, his death pays for your sins, and you can live in relationship with God. And that actually leads to hope in the second one, which is you can rule with God one day. One day God's gonna fix this whole world and he's gonna allow us to rule with him and to enjoy this world with him as he determined. And the reason you know you can reign with him and you're gonna rule over a transformed world with him is because when Jesus died, it transformed you. The old disordered nature you had was restored through Jesus Christ. That's why in Romans 5, verse 17 and verse 21, when it talks about us not being slaves to sin anymore, it talks about sin no longer having a reign, which is rule language, king language. Sin doesn't have a rule or reign over you. Why? Because grace might reign through righteousness, leading to an eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. Through Christ, we can live with him and we're gonna reign with him. Now listen, very briefly, because my time is basically almost up. The question is, why did we do this lecture-like sidebar to talk about Jesus becoming man and being a priest when we're in the book of Philippians? And there's a reason. Whether you grew up in the church or not, we all know that doing good things as a Christian matters. But here's the problem. If all being a Christian is, is doing good things, then you're missing something huge. You're missing everything Jesus Christ did and is doing now for you. No matter how faithfully you think you're living for God, you will always know that you're not living perfectly for God. But Jesus is living for you now from heaven. When Jesus is our priest, he's our priest forever. Now, if you have your faith in Jesus Christ, he's living and representing you before the Father now. The gospel is not just everything Christ has done for you. It's everything he's doing for you now. And the reason that matters in Philippians is because if you don't know that, then you're not gonna wanna do everything Philippians is talking to you about. Sharing the gospel as we partner together. That's what Philippians is about. And you know what else it's about? It's about joy. And you can't have joy in the gospel if you don't get it. And you can't have joy in the gospel if you think the gospel is a one-sided relationship with God. It's not. Christ proved that relationship through Christ is a relationship. It's not just you doing things for God. It's every time you start desiring, loving, and living for God more. 
It's because Christ is doing those things for you now. Hebrews chapter 7, verse 23 and 25. The former priests were many in number because they were prevented by death from continuing in office, but Jesus holds his priesthood permanently because he continues forever. Consequently, he is able to save to the uttermost those who draw near to him to God through him, since he always lives to make intercession for them. And the way John says the same in 1 John chapter 2, verse 1, is that we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ our Lord. Here's the whole point. It's not just knowing Jesus needs to be a human to be a priest. It's understanding that if you know everything Christ is doing for you now, it's a lot easier to live for Christ. If you know Christ is living for you now, it's not that hard to live for Christ. Or the way Paul would say it in Philippians is if you know the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus, chapter three, verse eight, and I might add, surpassing worth of Jesus knowing you, then chapter one, verse 27, you will allow your life to be lived in a manner worthy of the gospel. Let's pray. Father, even I found this week that understanding your priesthood and all of the details of your salvation through your son is a very complicated thing. But Father, we are so thankful that your word was not created to be complicating to us. It was created that we might know and love you. Father, thank you for providing so much in your word, not just for us to live, but to live with you. Not just to live with ourselves, but to anticipate your return when we will reign with you. But Father, none of that can happen if we are not excited about the gospel and we don't love you through the gospel. So Father, if there's anyone here who does not know you or does not love you or who thinks being a Christian is just doing good things or being a nice person, please restore them by looking at your son. Father, let Christ be so big in our headlights so that we would see the ongoing relationship of love you are inviting us into through your son. And Father, we can't do that unless the spirit that empowered your son empowers us as well. So Father, please move in our hearts to see not just that we would live for you, but that we would live with you. And Father, we are confident that you will do this because you have said that the prayers of righteous people avail much. And because of your son Christ, who is our high priest, for those of us who believe we are righteous before you. So Father, please answer our prayer that we might know you, love you, and live for you. And we pray this in your name. Amen.